carbon credits. It's an emerging market that many ranchers are very uncertain about. I think this is a place where you just keep your eyes wide open. That's Dr. Clay Mathis with the King Ranch Institute for Ranch Management. He'll join me on the show as well as an expert in the field of carbon credits, Dr. Jason Sawyer, Chief Science Officer for the East Foundation. In general, you know, practices that promote range health should be consistent with practices that improve soil organic matter and soil carbon. Additionally, agriculture lawyer with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension, Tiffany Lashmet will offer her insight rooted from an extensive background in contracts involving carbon credits. But the devil really is in the details in these contracts. Carbon credits, it's our topic on this episode of the Working Ranch Radio Show. Welcome you back here to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. Thank you for joining us. By the way, this is episode 85, and I think this is an episode that we're going to be able to star in all of our list of episodes, not to diminish any any of our guests in the past, but I will truly say this is a topic today as we're talking carbon credits that really, boy, there are a lot of questions out there in regards to this. And first and foremost, I want to thank the key Ranch Institute for Ranch Management for uh, putting a webinar out there. We're going to reference it several times here today, as well as a white paper that they put out uh, in regards to selling carbon credits and kind of giving you a decision guide for us as ranchers and landowners. And I want to thank Dr. Clay Mathis. He helped kind of facilitate uh, this uh, our, our interview here today that we've got with all of our guests. And I appreciate him also joining us on our program here in just a few moments. And if you heard in the opening. We're also going to be joined by Dr. Jason Sawyer, who's a chief science officer for the East Foundation, and also Tiffany Lashmet. She is the agriculture lawyer with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension. So those three folks all joining us here on this topic of carbon credits. And I'm going to just leave it at that because we're going to get to more about it later on. And uh, I want to save plenty of time for that. Of course, coming up at the end of our program here today, meteorologist Don Day will be joining us with a look at our long-term weather. A quick thank you to our sponsors of the Working Ranch Radio Show, Gelvy and Balancer, the smart, reliable, and profitable choice. For more information, go to their website at gelvy.org. And Zoetis, it's the little things that could derail progress, but your herd can be covered. Visit getlessparasites.com for solutions from Zoetis. And the American Akaushi Association. Experience the difference at akaushi.com. And finally, Biozyme. You know, it's weaning time, so for protection and recovery, think VitaCharge by Biozyme. For more information, visit vitafirm.com forward slash vita-charge. Well, now it's time to check in with the captain, Tim O'Byrne. He is the publisher and editor of Working Ranch Magazine for this week's edition of Tim's Two Cents. Hey, Justin. Hey, everybody out there in Working Ranch Radio Land. Justin, I want to ask Don Day a question. The other day, I was sitting on my big fat easy chair, feet up. I had a plastic bucket of those cheese balls and just uh, munching away. And I was watching The Unexplained. And that is a Netflix show series uh, hosted and produced by William Shatner. And it's a pretty good show. 
I learn a lot every time I watch it. And this show was on weather. And somewhere in the show, he mentioned, he quoted somebody that said that tornadoes in the past several years have increased in intensity every year by about 5%. And I thought that was pretty shocking. I've never seen a tornado, but I know tons of our listeners uh, in in, uh, readership uh, live in Tornado Alley. And I kind of thought that was important to know. If uh, these things are increasing every year in intensity by 5%, that's a pretty interesting factoid. Don, do you have anything to say about that? I want to hear about it. Have a good week, folks. All right, Captain. Well, I'll tell you this. Don't get too far from the easy chair. Maybe slow down on the cheese balls just a little bit. And when we come to our weather segment, I will ask that question to meteorologist Don Day. Well, stay with us, folks. Coming up in our next segment, we're going to get to our featured interview. It's on carbon credits, and I'm looking forward to bringing it to you. Stay with us. You're listening to the Working Ranch Radio Show. is important to cattle producers from daily chores to parasite control just like protection is important to us based on approved labels valbison suspension covers 25 percent more parasites and life stages than safeguard visit getlessparasites.com for more solutions from zoetis consult your veterinarian for assistance in the diagnosis treatment and control of parasitism And we welcome you back here to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. Thanks for joining us here on our program today. A topic that I am really excited to bring to our show. We've we've kind of touched on it in some other things and some other shows that we've had, but I think to get to the depth that we're going to get today on a subject that is really uh, becoming an issue that ranchers need to be very aware of, uh, I'm excited to bring it. We're going to be talking about carbon credits and kind of under that title of Should I Sell Carbon Credits? Now, as I said at the beginning of the program, and we will put some resources in the links of this show that will allow you to download a webinar and a white paper regarding this that I think will be extremely critical. Uh, those things will be available, but we do have some of those folks that were on that webinar joining us here today. And uh, joining us on our program is Dr. Clay Mathis. He's the director for the King Ranch Institute for Ranch Management. Also joining us will be Dr. Jason Sawyer. He's the chief science officer for the East Foundation, as well as Tiffany Lashmet, who is the agricultural lawyer for Texas A&M AgriLife Extension. So uh, a wide basis of knowledge coming together here today as we talk about the topic of selling carbon credits. Uh, Dr. Mathis, let's start with you. First of all, I, I guess before we start with all of you, thank you all for joining us here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Glad to be here today. Dr. Mathis, let's start with you. And and from a perspective, this is a big deal uh, for the ranching industry, which is why you, as the director of the King Ranch Institute for Ranch Management, thought, I mean, this is something that you you guys kind of just looked at and said, we need to get this out in front of ranchers. And so it is a big topic. Yeah, this question of should I sell carbon credits is a, it's a big one. Um, it's one that uh, many of the producers in this industry have been asking for the last couple of years. And um, we came together at the King Ranch Institute for Ranch Management and decided that we needed to put together a a rapid action team that would dig into this and try to pull together the best information that we have today. Um, So we assembled this team um, and we had a webinar on it just recently. We wrote a white paper, all of these things just to try to help producers be able to make better decisions 
in a really uh, uncertain and emerging market area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I believe that in that webinar, you guys did a good job of addressing there. One of the things that really comes out in that webinar is the fact that this is a new and emerging market, and there's just a lot of unknowns, which is thus the purpose of, of that webinar in our program here today. Uh, because it is so new and, and we understand certain, probably some very basics of it, I do think it's important that we take a little bit of time here to get into uh, do maybe getting on the same page about some of the definitions and the elements that are out there with that. And Dr. Uh, Sawyer, I want to go to you. Uh, Dr. Jason Sawyer is also joining us, as I said, at the top of the program. She is the Chief Science Officer for the East Foundation. And Dr. Sawyer, let, let's get some foundation to this whole carbon credit element that's out there so that we can really, from a basis standpoint, be all talking the same thing. You bet, Justin. You know, as Clay said, this is certainly an issue that's been in everybody's conversation for a while now. And really, the notion of carbon credits has been with us for, oh, 20 or 30 years. But we're still not always sure what exactly it means. And so the easiest way for me to describe that for somebody is that if plants take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, move it through their root system and put it into a form so that it stabilizes and stays in the soil, then one metric ton of carbon dioxide removed from the atmosphere represents a carbon credit. Now, what that what happens to that carbon or carbon dioxide underground is that it's set aside. It's sort of removed from circulation in the carbon cycle. And that's where we get this notion of sequestration, right? We've set something aside. And really what this emergent marketplace for land managers is, is about can we measure and quantify and trace that removal of CO2 from the atmosphere in a way that allows others to utilize that as credits to offset their debits to the atmospheric account. So when we look at some of this kind of stuff as as in your webinar, uh, David Delaney makes some comments about some of the challenges that we see out there and that and it's partly why this is a big topic for us as ranchers is it's an unregulated market. There's a lot of variables to it. And there's just in in general, there's just not a lot of information out there uh, on this. And so uh, from that standpoint, uh, you know, kind of define the process, if you can, a little bit as far as how this rolls through from us as a landowner, as ranchers, to where this market's going to go? Sure. You know, so we can talk about sort of the basic process of how, what a carbon credit is and how it gets generated. But, you know, somebody should be thinking about, well, you know, so what and who cares? And, you know, as we think about this sort of atmospheric burden of carbon dioxide, and Dave did a really nice job in the webinar of talking about that, um, we would like to, or the, there are policies in place, right, that aim to limit the increase in that atmospheric carbon dioxide pool. And the way to do that then is obviously we can reduce emissions of carbon dioxide from various sources as much as possible. But then we need some way to actively remove it from the atmosphere. And so for a for an entity like think of a company that emits carbon dioxide, 
Um, they might be looking for people who can remove some of that from the atmosphere on their behalf. And that really creates sort of the incentive structure um, which leads to markets, right? So if I have something that you want, we make a trade, we make a market. And really the foundations of that are related to international agreements associated with um, goals for the climate change mitigation. You know, it's the motivations of, of emitters, if you will, to achieve certain environmental standards that causes them to desire or seek offsets to their own emissions. And that's what's creating the opportunity for land managers uh, to capitalize demand for offsets. And, you know, so that's the basis really of, of the increased attention on those things and the increased pressure on those corporations to be good environmental stewards effectively increases demand to a point that it becomes a viable opportunity for ranching. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about some of the production risks that are out there with this, what would some of those production risks be? Oh, that's a great question. So, you know, just because we've established demand for the thing, um, now we have to create supply, right? And this is what ranches do all the time. We produce products. You know, we tend to think about beef products as an example. Um, we're really good at producing. But if our goal is now to produce carbon credits that we can market, then we should think about the same sorts of production risk that we're exposed to all the time. Some big ones to think about in this space are how much of that production do I actually control? So we talked about the primary way for carbon credits to be produced is through plant growth. But I'm not really fully in control of plant growth on a given year on my ranch. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the weather has a lot to say about that, the season of the year, my soil type and texture. And so we would like to be able to predict how much production of carbon we can generate from a given ranch. But unfortunately today, we don't have great tools to make that prediction. And so certainly one source of what I call production risk in this market is a ranch's ability to accurately predict and manage the rate of carbon accumulation in their soil profile. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's some other sources of, of production risk that we might want to consider as well. And, you know, one of those is, is our soil at some sort of capacity or saturation? Can we actually accumulate more carbon than, than what's already there? You know, this is a, an open question. There's, there's certainly some indication that all soil types might have some upper capacity or upper limit. There's some other data that suggests that um, while that may exist, we're all very far away from it and there's room to grow. But nobody can be totally definitive about that. So I have some, some capacity risk, you might say, the weather risk that we talked about, and then, you know, just the, the risk of being able to measure the change. Mm -hmm. So we're, when we start talking about measuring relatively small changes over really large and diverse landscapes, that's a pretty difficult thing to accomplish. And so one of the sources of risk here is that I might actually go out 
and manage my ground in a certain way that actually does achieve the goal, right? I actually accumulated more carbon, for example, mm-hmm. but because it's variable and it, it's variable across the landscape, I might not have enough sampling capacity to be able to even detect the change. And therefore, I can't market the product because I can't prove that I have it. Mm-hmm. So in a nutshell, those are a couple of what we see as the key sources of production risk, you might say, in, in this environment that managers need to be thoughtful about before they commit. Mm-hmm. You bet. And I, and I think we're going to be able to get into some more dialogue about that in a bit. Uh, folks, my guest today, I'm being joined by Dr. Clay Mathis. He's the director of the King Ranch Institute for Ranch Management. We were just talking with Dr. Jason Sawyer just now. And also joining us is Tiffany Lashmet. And uh, when we come back, let's talk, folks, about some of the transactional risks. And Tiffany, this is where I'm going to lean on you a little bit. I know as an attorney, uh, this will be your kind of down your alley completely. So folks, stay with us. When we come back, we're going to talk about that as we are discussing here today, carbon credits on your ranching operation. We'll get into that when we return on the Working Ranch Radio Show. At the American Akaushi Association, we're more than prime. The American Akaushi Association was created to help ranchers be more profitable and find opportunities when using Akaushi genetics in their herd. We focus on market opportunities for our members and offer support from conception to consumer. When you choose Akaushi, you have a network right there with you. Experience the difference at Akaushi.com. That's A-K-A-U-S-H-I dot com. And we welcome you back here to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm your host, Justin Mills. Thanks for joining us here today on a program with a topic that I think is a big topic for ranchers, especially landowners across the country. And for us us in the ranching industry, it does hit home here. As we talk about carbon credits and uh, entitled, Should I Sell Carbon Credits? And it's in regards to a webinar that was put out by the King Ranch Institute for Ranch Management. I'll give you that link uh, here later on. It'll also be in the link of our podcast description as well in addition to the white paper that they sent out with that. I've got uh, several of those that were on that webinar joining me here today. And uh, earlier we heard from Dr. Clay Mathis, who's the director of the King Ranch Institute for Ranch Management. Just a little bit ago, Dr. Jason Sawyer uh, was giving us kind of some baseline information on that as far as production risks. Let's go now into transactional risks. And I'm going to go now to Tiffany Lashmet. She is the agriculture lawyer with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension. And Tiffany, I appreciate you joining us here on this because I, I really I enjoyed your portion of that webinar because this is uh, this is a situation where it, it's a business deal. It needs to be viewed as a business deal between two businesses. And and you were very clear, very clear indeed of the most important thing they need to do. And what was that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for having me, uh, giving me the opportunity to speak with you. Yeah, so the most important thing that I tell any landowner looking at a carbon contract is it's critical that you read the contract uh, and, and really get into the details, understand the intricacies. None of these contracts are written the same. Uh, you know, They're not created equally. There's a lot of sort of 
you know, nitpicky or kind of what you might consider fine print in here that can have major impacts on your operation if you're not paying attention. Mm -hmm. And there's some provisions, there's some things when you're looking at this that really we need to be aware of. Again, it goes back to essentially reading the contract. But from your experience, I know you've reviewed and you've seen a lot of these different contracts. And one of the first things you'll tell everybody is none of these are the same. So uh, I thought it was interesting in the webinar, somebody asked, do you have a standard contract? (laughs) And your response, was there's no nothing standard about any of these but let's talk about some of these because one of the issues that we need to be aware of is the stacking provision explain that a little bit that's right and this is a good example of something that if you're just sort of skimming through these contracts you might think it looks like fine print but it could have major implications on a ranch owner and so a stacking provision in these contracts and most of them have one um Typically, what what the intent here is basically to say you're not going to enroll the same piece of property in more than one carbon contract, right? So let's say I have a thousand acres and I sign a contract with company A to sell the carbon credits from that property. I'm not then going to enroll those same thousand acres with company B, right? And that's fine. And I think everybody is happy to agree to that. Where it gets trickier, though, is that some of the contracts are written much more broadly And they can actually um, uh, prohibit your participation in other programs, uh, potentially. So, for example, some of the contracts say, if you enter into this contract, you're agreeing not to enter into any other contract or program related to carbon credits. Well, what happens if the USDA comes out, you know, in the next farm bill, for example, with a new carbon program that you want to enroll in? You may be prohibited from doing that. Some of them are even more broad, uh, broadly written, and they say something along the lines of, by entering into this contract, you agree not to accept any government program payments. Well, now you may have just forfeited your rights to things like EQIP funds or CRP payments or ARC PLC payments, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I think crop insurance is another one or PRF insurance that could be at jeopardy. And so it, it just depends on how broadly that is written the uh, actual impact it can have. And in addition to that, some of the fine details that we also need to be aware of would fall under the uh, area of penalties and uh, such as, you know, terminating these contracts if you so choose and some of the details that you need to be aware of in that. Sure, that's exactly right. And, you know, you may be able to terminate that contract early. That's accurate. But you face all of the penalties spelled out in those contractual terms for doing so. And again, those differ by contract, but they can be things like, you know, losing um, unvested portions of payment, having to repay expenses for the company, et cetera. And so you just need to be very clear how and when penalties that, that affect you could be triggered under that contract. Mm-hmm. In addition to the penalties is just understanding some of the amendments and some of the assessments that could be in that included in that contract that may end up taking away a lot of control for us as the landowner. Sure, right. I mean, you know, from, from the assignment standpoint, I think that a lot of landowners are taking the time to really do a lot of kind of due diligence research and decide what company do I want to partner with, right? And they're doing their homework and they're talking to people and they're really making this decision. But almost all of the contracts I see actually allow that company to assign their rights to any other company, right? And if you're the landowner and you don't realize that you may have done your homework and you're very comfortable with company A, 
but your contract gets assigned to company B and you never would have entered into an agreement with them, right? So I think that's one example of something to really be careful and pay attention to. Mm -hmm. I'm sure a lot of times uh, there's a lot of discussion about payment and and how that's structured. Um, I know uh, maybe we need to go back a little bit uh, to Dr. Sawyer on this if we need to, but I think there needs to be a real understanding of what is being counted for a carbon credit. And a lot of times we hear of numbers out there like maybe $20 an acre or $20 to the ton. And uh, there's just a lot of confusion with that. Even myself, I don't completely understand it as I'm kind of stumbling along here with that. So that element is something that we really need to have a clear understanding of truly how that payment is structured. Sure. I'll give the background and then defer to Dr. Sawyer for some of the details. But Essentially, you can kind of put the payment structures into two different buckets. The first bucket is what we call payment for practice. And that's a contract where if you adopt the practice, you get paid. Typically, it's so much per acre, right? So if I adopt a you know, rotational grazing practice, for mm-hmm. example, I'm going to get paid so many dollars per acre for just the adoption of that practice. That's one bucket, The other bucket, which is more common and more complex, is a uh, payment for outcome contract. And that's where they're actually going to come and take uh, measurements or do modeling to decide how much additional carbon you have stored in the soil. And you're going to get paid not just because you adopted the practice, but because that practice uh, led to this outcome of additional carbon being stored. And so two very different ways that these payments can be calculated. And just into your point on those payments, I think very important for people to realize exactly how the payment is quoted in the contract. Because what I often hear is what you said earlier, which is, you know, $20 per acre. Mm-hmm. Typically speaking, and again, I'll let Dr. Sawyer speak more to this, but typically speaking, the contracts I have seen, it's more like $20 per metric ton of carbon stored. Okay, so Dr. Sawyer, let's go to you now. And I think in my previous question, I served as a great example as to the confusion there because even myself not completely understanding it, uh, knowing that the, you know the, 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 there's the practice side of it that the Tiffany was talking about that is based on a per acre basis versus the stored carbon credits in there as she was explaining. And there's kind of this assumption that for every acre, there could be a ton, a metric ton of carbon, but that's not really the case. So uh, give us a little bit more explanation on this. Well, as Tiffany did a great job of pointing out, you know, it's important to understand exactly what you're agreeing to. And so here's where I think the confusion often sets in is we defined a carbon credit as being one metric ton of carbon dioxide equivalents. And the nominal kind of going price that gets talked about the most you know, in the current situation is $20 per carbon credit. Now, you know, thinking about this production of carbon credits, if my ranch can produce one ton of carbon or one carbon credit per acre per year, well, then I would get paid $20 per acre. Mm -hmm. But really I'm getting paid, as Tiffany said, for the carbon credits I produce. And and if my ranch only produces a tenth of a ton of carbon, then I'm only going to get paid one tenth of that $20 or $2. 
per acre, right? Mm -hmm. I'm still getting $20 per ton, but how many tons per acre can I produce? And I think that's the part that make the assumption that they can produce one ton per acre. And now we're kind of back to that production risk part, right? Mm -hmm. Can I really produce one carbon credit per acre? Or am I more likely to produce half a credit or a tenth of a credit per acre? Mm -hmm. And so this is really where that confusion sets in because our production rate is quite variable. And, you know, I, I think also um, people should take heed of, of some of Tiffany's comments that if, if you have production risk, can you negotiate in a contract to relieve yourself of some of that? Mm -hmm. you know, if you get paid for a practice, that's probably less risky than receiving payment for performance or outcome. But it might not be as valuable because somebody else is assuming that risk. Yeah. Well, and, and there's so many questions in my mind that I know probably other people are thinking, and we're not going to get to some of those that I, I really think get do get answered in the webinar, and I encourage you to go there. But one of the things that came up in this is because it is such a new and emerging market out there, um, one of the things was, should should people be selling right now? Well, I'll, I'll take a start at that, and then I'm going to hand it off to people that are smarter than me that are on a podcast here. But, you know, one of the things I try to be really thoughtful about is is not to tell anybody what they should or shouldn't yeah. do, but to, to give them some things that are probably important considerations as they make that decision. And so if someone considers all of these different elements that we're trying to, to help them think about, they may decide that that it is worth the the initial risk or to experiment with the market. And if it's an opportunity for them to improve the financial condition of the ranch and and create another enterprise, then that's certainly their prerogative as a manager. Um, on the other hand, they might need to consider all of these, you know, the fine print that Tiffany talks about. And they may decide that, that it's better to wait and let some of these uncertainties be resolved before they're ready to commit. Um, so I certainly wouldn't tell somebody not to do it or to do it um, at, at present. I think that, that we'd like to help people think through the, the mm -hmm. situation and, and make the best decision for them for now. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a good way to put it because I, I would agree. It's it, And that's partly the purpose of uh, Clay. I know that's kind of the purpose that why you guys are doing this is give folks that, that ability to, to kind of make that decision, uh, go through that decision process with them. My guest today, folks, if you're just joining us, I'm joined by Dr. Clay Mathis. He's the director of King Ranch Institute for Ranch Management. Also, Dr. Jason Sawyer and Tiffany Lashmet. She's an attorney as we are talking about should I sell carbon credits and kind of some guidelines to give ranchers when it comes to considering this and looking at this very, very complex topic. We've got one more segment with our guests here. When we come back, we're going to talk more about it and uh, just some of the logistics of it as well as we continue when we come back on the Working Ranch Radio Show.
For commercial cow-calf producers, crossbreeding with Galvay and Balancer is the smart, reliable, and profitable choice. Galvay and Balancer females offer maternal superiority through increased fertility, greater longevity, and more pounds of calf weaned per cow exposed. In the feed yard, Balancer cattle can offer increased performance, improve feed efficiency, and have excellent carcass merit. Balancers add the pounds, make the grade, and deliver the value. Gelvy and Balancer, the smart, reliable, and profitable choice. For more information, go to gelvate.org. And we welcome you back here to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. I'm pleased to have my three guests joining us today. They are Dr. Clay Mathis, who's the director of the King Ranch Institute for Ranch Management. Also, Tiffany Lashmet. She's the agriculture lawyer for Texas A&M AgriLife Extension. And Dr. Jason Sawyer, chief science officer for the East Foundation. And our topic today is, should I sell my carbon credits? Uh, It was based off of a webinar that the King Ranch Institute for Ranch Management management put together, bringing in several uh, folks to kind of be on a webinar and not only give a presentation, but also have a question and answer period following that. I will put that link in our podcast description. But as we've had uh, different uh, comments here today, uh, I want to get into the the idea, though, of doing this. And and Dr. Mathis, I'll go to you because I think one of the one of the things to think about in all this is there's you can put a lot of effort in this. And at the end of the day, are we are we chasing a nickel only to spend a dime? And, you know, that's something that we really need to be aware of with this kind of a subject. Well, and that's a, that's a great question and it's pretty heavy on my mind. I mean, we all know that ranching is a tough business. Um, it's a, it's a low margin business and we've got to work for every bit of, of profit that we can make if we can make it. Um, that's not all to sound like it's doom and gloom, but I think that, And again, one of the reasons we put this effort forward is because the vast majority of ranches are looking for opportunities to to increase revenue from the land in some manner that helps them keep that ranch in the family, that helps them make ends meet. And so I think when you go back to some of the comments that, that Tiffany made a few minutes ago, payment for practice versus payment for outcome. You know, if we think about those, any new practices, they're usually going to come at some sort of a cost. And so I think it's really important then when you look at what you might get paid to store carbon credits, that you know what that's going to be in terms of additional revenue relative to the cost to get it. And so that's going to be an individualized ranch by ranch question to answer, but probably need to look really closely into that. If you have to cross fence for some additional rotational grazing or th- something of that nature, um, is the carbon contract in your payment expected to pay for that and have you come out ahead? The other one is payment for outcomes. And so as Dr. Sawyer mentioned, um, it's pretty expensive to do the testing necessary to figure out because of the variation in soil carbon, um, it, it's expensive to, to do enough sampling to, to measure that well. And so you've got to look at that um, and determine, is it going to be cost effective um, to enter into a contract. So those type of questions, again, they're individualized for every single ranch, but really need to be looking at both the revenue side and the extra costs 
associated with a contract of this nature. Mm-hmm. I want to get into the practices. We've used that terminology here a little bit today about practices. Uh, you can be paid on practice or practices that lead to carbon sequestration in the soil. And Dr. Sawyer, let's go to you on this one because one of the things that you simply pointed out is that any management that promotes forage growth is likely to increase carbon accumulation in our soil. And I believe as ranchers that if if we really are going to try to do the best that we can, wouldn't we be doing that process? Well, that's a great point, Justin. And and as I said, I, I think that as a general statement, the things that we typically believe to be best management practices for the long-term health of our range are similar to the things that we would expect to increase soil carbon accumulation. And so in one frame, you could say, well, I just need to keep doing right things right. There's some question marks though about whether or not you must change a practice in order to qualify. And that would be relative to the the definition of additionality, which is a complicated topic in itself. Mm-hmm. But in general, you know, practices that promote range health should be consistent with practices that improve soil organic matter and soil carbon. Um, you know, I, I'm probably less prepared than, than Tiffany maybe to speak about certain specific practices on the ranching side, other than maybe a prescribed grazing program. That, that people are attempting to contract. You know, grazing practices tend to be the ones that come across my desk most often. Mm-hmm. Tiffany, I'll let you add some comments onto that if you'd like. Yes, sir. I, I would agree with Dr. Sawyer. I mean, I realize that there may be a host of other practices someone could undertake to increase uh, carbon storage and increase, you know, forage on the ground. But from a payment perspective, the only contracts I've seen Um, The requirements have all had to do with some sort of grazing management plan. Mm -hmm. Well, before we head out here today, I want to go to each one of you with just some final comments. I appreciate you all joining us. Tiffany, let's go to you first. And from your perspective as an attorney, uh, some great advice that you gave folks in the webinar there. uh, Very, very concise and good advice there. Just some final comments from you on the transactional element. Sure. Again, I I sort of go back to what I've been preaching all along here is that the devil really is in the details in these contracts. It's critically important to make sure that you read and understand the contractual provisions. Um, And I really do recommend that folks engage an attorney who's got experience with these contracts that's licensed in your jurisdiction to help with the negotiation. Um, And that's the last thing I would say is do remember, I mean, contracts are negotiable. And so if there is something in one of these that's a deal breaker for you, Um, You certainly can try to negotiate with that company. And if they're unwilling to do so, then you can make a decision about what to do. But but keep in mind that, you know, it is a, a contract. They are negotiable. And I would recommend using an attorney to help with that process. You bet. Dr. Sawyer, let's go to you next. And just some final comments from you. You bet. I mean, I do think that that this whole area is a really exciting opportunity and certainly has caused a number of people to think about ranching in a different way. I mean, people outside of our industry. And I think that that's really positive. The the things that I would encourage people to consider are this exposure to production risk and carbon credits. You know, can I really manage it? What, how predictable is it? And can it be measured? 
And as you think through those things, boy, go back to Tiffany's advice. And as you make these contracts, can you use the contract negotiation process as a way to maybe offset, limit, or hedge your production risk? And let those two things work together as you think about making a decision or entering into an enterprise on your own. Mm-hmm. You bet. Dr. Mathis, let's go to you next. Uh, first of all, I, I appreciate the King Ranch Institute for Ranch Management taking this, recognizing this this issue out there and doing this. But some final comments from you in regards to this topic. Well, sure. And um, just want to thank the, the team that we put together for working on this with us. Um, at the King Ranch Institute for Ranch Management. I think when we when we consider this whole area and, and think about the ranches that your listenership um, might be managers of or be influencers of, I think this is a place where you just keep your eyes wide open. It's an opportunity. And in this business, we need to look at opportunities when they come our way. Um, when you look at that those opportunities, um, certainly we've got to know what the costs are going to be if we participate and if we can really get that revenue from the contract that we can prove up on if we're um, in a payment for outcomes type of situation. But also recognize this is an emerging market. And by nature, emerging markets are very unpredictable. So um, with, with those um, thoughts in mind, I think it makes sense for producers to take a look and see if it fits for their situation and their specific operation. And it may and it may not. But at least we hope that with this white paper we put together and the webinar that we held, that we've helped a few make a better decision to uh, to protect the sustainability of their operation. So, Justin, thanks for having us. You bet. And I appreciate you guys uh, joining us here on our show here today. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. And folks, like I said, I will put a description to the link that you can go and download this webinar as well as the white paper that Dr. Mathis was talking about. It is a big uh, a topic, and I think you'll find that webinar extremely useful. I think we just sort of scratched the surface here today on some of the things that are, were talked about in that webinar. Much more detail, uh, a lot of good information in that webinar. Be sure to check that out. Now, like I've said before, I will put the link in the podcast description to the webinar, but also if you're on a computer, or on your phone and you just want to go straight to the website if you just search under king ranch institute for ranch management just type that all in in your web browser it's just easier to do that than try to give you their specific web address but if you type that in you will find them and go into the king ranch institute's website and you'll look under the resources tab and there you will see should i sell carbon credits a decision guide for ranchers and there you will find access into the webinar as well as the white paper that we've referenced here on our show today. Well, stay with us. Coming up next, meteorologist Don Day joins us as we take a look at our long-term weather. Plus, he'll answer the question the captain threw out a moment ago on our tornadoes these past several years increasing in intensity. He'll answer that question plus more when we return on the Working Ranch Radio Show. It's weaning time, one of the biggest days of the year for you and the most stressful for your calves. Ensure a smooth transition with the VitaCharge Weaning Program. This two-step program with the AmaFirm Advantage gives calves the nutritional boost they need to get through the first weeks of weaning, accelerate appetite, increase weight gain, and improve health. It's weaning time. Get them ready with VitaCharge. For more information, visit VitaFirm.com forward slash Vita dash charge. 
And we welcome you back here to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. As we head now into our weather segment, joining us is meteorologist Don Day. And uh, folks, if you're just joining us and didn't hear uh, the captain's two cents, he asked a question that uh, to meteorologist Don Day, and it was in regards to the TV series called The Unexplained. And Don, in that one particular episode, they were talking about that tornadoes in the past several years have increased intensity by 5%. That was the quote in there. So what's your view in regards to that? Well, I was familiar when when he brought that up. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that the article that came out about that. And I went back and I and I read the, the paper where it came from. And you can paint me as being a little skeptical <laughs> with with the statement that they know that there's been a 5% increase in the intensity of tornadoes. And, you know, we could talk about this for a long time, but couple things to point out and and why I think it's a little bit misleading to tell people that tornado intensity is increasing. First thing I will say is actually the number of strong tornadoes, F3 or higher, has been decreasing along with the number of tornadoes. Uh, the trend has been down over the last several years. So uh, first of all, we've seen less tornadoes this year. We're below average. Mm-hmm. The second thing is, and and folks need to remember this, this is really important, whatever they come across in the media about future weather scenarios or whether or not we're seeing rapid changes, whether it's tornado intensity or anything else, is, is that um, a lot of this data comes out in a linear fashion, meaning that the rate of change continues on, on a linear slope. You know, so if, if you say that tornadoes are increasing intensity by 5%, you can take that out further on a graph and say, wow, by the year 2050, mm-hmm. it's going to be 10% or 15% more tornadoes are more intense. Well, the weather doesn't work that way. Weather is nonlinear. Mm-hmm. So could you have a period of time where tornado intensity has increased? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so we can say that, that is a, there, there's the possibility for that. But at the same time, the next year or the next five-year period, tornado intensity may decrease. So weather always follows a sine wave, whether it's temperature, whether it's barometers, whether it's rain or snowfall, however you measure the weather over time, it's not linear. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to apply linear calculations and statistical trends with weather. I think that's a bit of a mistake. The other thing I want to bring up is Tornado damage assessment is a little bit subjective. So when they go out and they use what's called the Fujita scale, F0 will be the weakest tornado. And F5, you know, from the movie Twister, they talk about an F5, you know, that's your strongest, most destructive uh, tornado. And those ratings are based on two things, estimated wind speed and also what the damage is like. So if you go back, if you go make an assessment on how strong a tornado was, it's the damage of what you think the wind speeds may have been. So it's subjective in the sense that a human goes out there and makes some determinations that are not measured determinations. Okay. There wasn't a wind sensor where that tornado went through that recorded the wind speed. Was the house that was it destroyed? Was it a brick house or was it a mobile home that was destroyed? So we can go into a lot of the the finer minutia details here, but it's safe to say that tornadoes are dangerous. Tornadoes can be of the F3 amount or higher. 
But if we do have a trend, let's say the paper is correct, that tornado intensity is increasing, it doesn't mean it's on a linear slope and will continue that way in the future. Yep, yep, good point there. Well, let's talk one more thing before we get to weather, and we'll do this kind of quickly because I know you've been pushing it quite a bit on your podcast as well. I've went ahead and followed up on it to following your advice on this, but let's talk about Coco Raz and what that means and, and, and also folks maybe getting involved with their own uh, weather station. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. So this started in the late 90s uh, out of uh, uh, Fort Collins, Colorado, shortly after there was a big, devastating and deadly flood that went through Fort Collins, Colorado. I think it was 98 or 99. And, um, you know, one of the problems of knowing how much rainfall was the fact that there aren't a lot of weren't a lot of rain gauges around at that time because our measured whether it's rain, whether it's wind or temperature is usually done at airports. That makes good sense for aviation, right? Mm -hmm. But you have these big gaps in data. And when it comes to trying to know what the drought situation is or the flood situation or soil moisture situation is, everybody once a week checks out the drought monitor. You might say, well, how do they come up with the drought monitor? Where, Where does the data come from? Well, it comes from people measuring the rain and also from radar estimates, but radar estimates really aren't that great sometimes. And the ground truth, we call it, with a four-inch rain gauge is the best way to measure how much rain fell. And so this effort was put together, a volunteer record, uh, as you call it, Raz. It, it's a volunteer way for people to take part in measuring rain and snow and being able to report that into a large database. So it's just not the major airport 100 miles from you where you're, they're measuring rain, but it's at your ranch. Mm-hmm. It's at your farm. You know, it's it's in locations where no one would put a rain gauge anyway. So it fills in the gaps. It fills in the holes. And uh, what the volunteer uh, situation is, you, get, you have a four-inch rain gauge. You take measurements of rainfall. You report even when it doesn't rain. And that goes into a database. And it helps a multitude of people, people tracking drought, tracking soil moisture, really important in rangeland conditions mm-hmm. and management, and also people who study urban flooding or situations where, you know, if we build this road here, we need rain data. Oh, it's out in the middle of nowhere. We have no rain data. Well, you can fill it in by being part of this uh, a volunteer effort. And it's a really, it's actually really fun. If, if you like tracking, watching the weather, it's worth checking into. You bet. And I think the part that for folks really need to be aware of is uh, for us in very rural areas, this is a way to help with some of the drought monitoring status. Sometimes we feel like maybe the uh, they don't have a good grasp on our area as far as drought goes. This is one way we can participate and be a part of it. That's right. Yeah. If you look at the drought monitor and say, that is not what I'm observing. Well, it's not that somebody's making it wrong on purpose. There's usually a lack of data. And when there's a lack of data, what do you do? You fill in the gaps with a scientific guess. Mm -hmm. That's why real measured rainfall and snowfall is really important to get a good handle on. You bet. Well, we've used up a lot of time talking about some other good stuff. Let's talk weather. It looks like we're going to be seeing a little bit of a weather shift here around the uh, 10th or so of September. Yeah, September off to a very warm start for most of the nation. Continued really wet in the south, Texas, down into the Florida Gulf Coast area. But it's going to be summer for a little bit longer. But the Pacific Northwest, the Northern Rockies, and Western Canada, by next Friday and Saturday, you're going to have your first real taste of fall. That cooler weather will spread into the northern tier of the lower 48 by next weekend. 
All right. Well, we appreciate that. Great information here today on the tornado stuff. Also on Coco Ross, thanks for joining us here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Thanks for having me. And again, that was meteorologist Don Day with a look at our long-term weather. His website, dayweather.com. Speaking of websites, the, the website to go to Coco Raz that we were talking about just a little bit ago, it's cocoraz.org. That is spelled C-O-C-O-R-A-H-S.org is where you can go to that website. Well, stay with us. We'll put a wrap on this week's episode when we come back on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Do you have a young child, grandchild, niece, or nephew that loves the weather and wants to learn more? Day Weather has produced a children's weather journal full of weather facts, fun weather experiments, coloring pages, and pages to record weather observations for every season of the year. The weather journal is for ages 3 to 7 and designed to be fun and educational. The interactive weather projects are fun for the whole family to take part in. For only $10, the Day Weather Weather Journal is a great gift idea for any occasion. Click on our Amazon link to order at dayweather.com. Before we head out here today, a quick follow-up from our discussion about uh, carbon credits. And I do want to thank Dr. Clay Mathis with the King Ranch Institute for Ranch Management, not only for facilitating our guests and helping line up our guests here today, Dr. Jason Sawyer and Attorney Tiffany Lashmet, but also for the work that uh, he's been doing and that they're doing there at the King Ranch Institute for Ranch Management, tackling this topic and providing a great resource to us as ranchers and landowners. Be sure to check it out. The link's in the podcast description or go to their website to view that webinar and download that white paper. Speaking of websites, meteorologist Don Day was talking about Coco Raz. That website is C-O-C-O-R-A-S dot org. Hey, that's imp- important information for us in terms of drought monitoring. Take a look. Check it out. A thank you to our sponsors here today, Gelvy and Balancer, the smart, reliable, and profitable choice. For more information, go to Gelvy.org. And Zoetis, it's the little things that could derail progress, but your herd can be covered. Visit getlessparasites.com for solutions from Zoetis and the American Akaushi Association. Experience the difference at akaushi.com. And finally, Biozyme. It's weaning time, so for protection and recovery, think VitaCharge by Biozyme. Well, the Working Ranch Radio Show is a production of Working Ranch Magazine, branded number one by America's Ranchers. And speaking of Working Ranch Magazine, guess what I got in the mail this last week? Yep, my latest issue of of the magazine. If you don't have your subscription, go to their website at workingranchmag.com and check it out for yourself. Well, if you'd like to get a hold of me about something you heard on the show or an idea for a show topic, send me an email at justin.workingranch at gmail.com. Thanks again for joining us. I'm your host, Justin Mills, and until next time, keep your chin down and your mind in the middle. So long. So long.